Hi, I'm Terry Zabolski, pastor of Grace Community Church in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. I'd like to thank you for listening to this week's message. I hope and trust that God's Word is a blessing to you as you live for Him each and every day. special guest, Jonathan Zabolski. So it's definitely a great privilege to be up here and, and to speak about um, you know, what the Lord's done the last 30 years of my dad's life. Uh, it's definitely a blessing, and uh, it's uh, kind of as a privilege to, you know, it's, it's roles are reversed, sitting here, sitting there for 23 years now. Now it's my turn to talk now, just, I'm <laughs> just kidding. You can count how many times I say, um and hold me accountable. But um, actually, I want to give a little background as to how I arrived at the topic that I wanted to talk about today and uh, actually relate it to my dad and then get into the scriptures as to what Paul has to say about it. Uh, So my dad went to Baptist Bible College, and not to reiterate and be very redundant at this point, but he went to Baptist Bible College, graduated with a pre-seminary, pastoral degree, there we go, and uh, moved up to Buffalo, New York, where he originally heralded from. Uh, his dad owned a tax and insurance company. Am I getting that right? Okay. I can't believe I'm fact-checking as I'm saying it for the first time. Um, <laughs> a tax and insurance company. My dad went to go work for my grandfather uh, up, in, up in upstate New York. And uh, he wasn't sure if he was going to go into the ministry at that time. In fact, I think he was thinking he's still law school business. And he just... Loved going to a Christian college for undergraduate, but was thinking secular work. Uh, my grandfather was not saved, and about the time my dad was 23, I've heard that, but I didn't know exact ages, 23, 23, my age now, uh, he felt a call to go to ministry uh, out in, in Indiana to go to Grace Theological Seminary. At that point, my grandfather uh, tried to call, call foul and say, no, no, you can't do that. He was, not, he was not saved, and so he didn't understand the call of ministry or the, the call, uh, God's call, direct call on someone's life for that. So my dad said, no, I, you know, I've got to go um, in, kind of into the great unknown, and we've got to go out there with my mom and my sister. And um, my, my grandfather tried signing over the company to my dad at a very young age to deter him from going, a company that was growing at that time and uh, would probably offer my dad real job security, um, being the owner of the company, but also real financial security, uh, being just 23 years old, taking over a company like that. And, but he, he, he bucked that. He bucked the financial gain for the call of Christ. So then he goes to Indiana and lives in a trailer. He goes from a place where he could have financial security, uh, job security, and he goes and lives in a trailer, with, and nothing wrong with that, but it, it's, it, what it shows, though, is that he had the opportunity to do something else, and for God's call, went uh, to pursue ministry. And so a couple years later, after working on his MDiv, he started a church in a very small town, probably comparable to West Perry, probably even smaller. Uh, you wouldn't know you're in there unless you stopped accidentally for, and, and got directions because you got lost and had to stop at a gas station. And you'd be like, I don't know where that is. And someone had to point to the star on the map of where you were. Uh, but that was North Manchester, Indiana. And so my dad starts a very small church, and the Lord blesses that. And he works on his doctorate of ministry at Westminster Theological Seminary. And goes and he, he, um, 
he ends up leaving and goes to Baptist Bible College to be the head of the pastoral department, uh, which is a nice position and uh, it, very suitable to his skills. But the Lord was still calling him to be a pastor, so he went to a church down here in Charmin Sound, which brought us to this area of Bible Baptist. And he was there, I believe, 14 years, 14 years. And uh, eventually there was a great storm in his life, and the Lord brought him out, and it could have dashed him against the rocks. And he came, and out of that started this church. And the reason I, I recap all that is because being an observer of a lot of that and hearing a lot of the stories firsthand from the people who were there, it was kind of like the Israelite children who heard all of the tales of what, what their forefathers or what happened with them um, <laughs> about moving to Indiana and whatnot. But, uh, but hearing all that, I couldn't help but think one thing. <clears throat> my dad is, is, as much as you, you laud all this praise on, well, my, he's disciplined and you know, he loves the Lord. It was never my dad who was able to make it 30 years. It was the strength of Christ in him. He himself is not able to get out of bed and go and minister to people and show up in hospitals and pray with those who are dying unless it was the righteousness of Christ in him. And so as, as I was far wayward and, and, and incredibly the, the prodigal son uh, years ago, it, it was the, the witness of Christ in my dad's life that showed that Christ is very real. And he, he bucked the financial prosperity he could have had. He went and started a small church in North Manchester. And then people were like, well, you know, it's all about um, <laughs> certain, certain gains. And it could have dashed him. As, as a man, if his righteousness was found in the things that, that were said, he wouldn't be here. He'd be in the business realm making lots of money. Think about that. It was never about the crowds. It was always about the work of Christ because it was always about the work of Christ in him. So I heard a message a few months ago from Timothy Keller, a Redeemer Presbyterian in uh, New York, on Philippians 3, with the righteousness of Christ. And it made me think of this. And so when my mom said, you know, we're planning a, a sneak attack on your dad, and, uh, you know, he won't know about it. Do, do you want to preach? And I, I, you know, I said it would be a great honor. I thought about, it took me about 30 seconds to figure out what, what, a, what it was I was going to preach on. And, um, and it, was, it was the righteousness of Christ. So if you can, open your Bibles to Philippians 3. If not, you can I think it's on the back of, of a pamphlet today. We're just going to go through Philippians 3. We'll go, uh, I know in the pamphlet it says 3 to 11. We'll just go 3 to 9. Try and keep it a little bit shorter, keep it within three hours. Uh, let you guys catch the second half of football today. <laughs> Okay, so 3.3. Three. For we are the real circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of, a, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. 
For his sake, I have counted, uh, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Now, sometimes Bible translators are a little bit more genteel than God himself. And so in verse, in verse 8, he says he counts everything as rubbish. Now, I won't actually say what necessarily the, the modern-day connotation is, but he, he's saying it's, it's the, the Greek word for excrement. <laughs> what he's saying is, in the modern-day translation, if it was to be contemporized, he'd say, you know my three Pulitzer Prizes? You know my Nobel Prize? You know the fact that I was <laughs> you know, elected captain of... I don't know, the Jesuits would be like Mother Teresa. You know, you know, all those things, it's crap. It's crap. It's even more than that, though. The connotation is far more than that. I believe the Bible uses good words to describe great things and uses bad words to describe very bad things because it's the only way that we will understand, partly even begin to understand how bad or how good uh, we have it in Christ and how bad we are uh, essentially within ourselves. And so it says, all those things that I counted as, as, as righteousness, all those things that I counted as gain, is crap compared to knowing Christ. Now, I used to look at this when I was growing up, and I used to say, oh, yeah. Now, in a comparison model, I guess Jesus is better, but they're both good. But, it, but what Paul's actually getting down to is saying it, it's, it's, a, it's an, an accounting system. It's a ledger. He's saying, if I'm going down the list and I'm saying profit versus loss— you know, and I, and I have to weigh them on a scale. It's not like, well, he just edges them out, like the 2000 presidential election. I mean, they're diametrically opposed. Diametrically opposed in, in the fact that one gains eternity and one loses eternity. So let's go through this real quick. Just uh, the first point here, and it's entitled An Almost Perfect Righteousness Still Miles Away. The background is, is, that the, there's Jewish people who are saying you got to be circumcised, you, you, can't, you can't eat with Gentiles, and there, there's li- making a list of rules of things that you have to do to, to be a good Christian. So they're, they're marrying the, the Judaistic ways and the Christian ways of saying, this is what makes someone good. And Paul's saying, how dare you say that? How dare you say that? And who are you to say this? If anyone has a right to hold someone to a standard, and if Christ isn't around anymore, I'm the one. Mo- if Moses isn't around anymore... I, I'm the one who can say this. And he gives, so he gives, uh, he gives a, a description of his past and, and his accolades. And so starting with verse 4, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, also if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. He's not boasting about, his, about the things he's done in the flesh. He's just saying, look, you're boasting about it. and You have no right to boast about it. If anyone has a right, it's me, and I still don't boast in it. It's rubbish. So, so, so let's go quickly through uh, what these things are that he can boast in. Circumcised on the eighth day. What he's saying is the eighth day, I, I've always been a Jew. I, I wasn't a, a convert at 12. I wasn't a convert at 30. I didn't grow up Greek. Even though he was born outside of Palestine, he's always been a Jew. Always. There's people, Ishmael, who was circumcised much later. I think he was 13. But he was on the eighth day, the exact day that you were commanded to circumcise children. He's always been a Jew. Um, uh, of the people of Israel, 
of the tribe of Benjamin. He refers to this quite often, of the tribe of Benjamin. Benjamin uh, is a very respectable tribe, and at this point, probably the most respectable. Very much most respectable. Uh, if you remember who Benjamin was, Benjamin was the favorite, or he's the youngest, of Jacob's favorite wife, Rachel. Uh, Rachel actually died in childbirth to him. And uh, when they were allotting which tribe gets what portion of the land in Palestine, Palestine, or, uh, Benjamin got the Holy Land. He got Jerusalem. He, he got the, the, the Holy of Holies and the temple. Uh, eventually, Jesus uh, died and rose again within this land. Uh, Benjamin was also the only tribe, well, them in Judah, the only ones who were loyal to the, the line of David after the kingdom split. To be a Benjamite is very honorable, very respectable. When uh, Mordecai, who helped, pro, who helped save the Israelites, um, against the Persians and the whole persecution there, he was a Benjamite. And they had big festivals to celebrate, uh, celebrate Mordecai and him being a Benjamite. Extremely honorable. When they went into war, one of the battle cries was, Behind you, O Benjamin. Benjamin used to, to, to lead the armies into war. They, they, were, they were very valiant, very loyal, and they were the only ones that really stayed pure. When the northern kingdom, the other 10 tribes, uh, intermarried and was very evil, it was the Benjamites who, for this time, even Paul could probably trace his line back directly all the way to Benjamin. Everyone else intermarried, Benjamin, Benjamites were not. They were, they were pure, they were valiant, they were leaders, they represented a lot of what Paul was in all of that. And so he's saying, look, I've always been a Jew. You know, I, I've, since I was born, I was, I was pretty much born into religious royalty, I mean, and especially the line of Benjamin. You know, I was born a Hebrew of Hebrews. This probably is to say, you know, even though I was born outside of Palestine, I was born of Hebrew parents. His dad was a hardcore Pharisee. Even though they lived outside of Palestine, he said, you're going to learn the Hebrew language. I'm going to send you to Pharisee school. You're going to learn the ways. You're going to learn the precepts of the Torah and the law. As the law of Pharisee, the Pharisees were pretty much Jesus' greatest enemy in his ministry. They didn't think Jesus was good enough. They were always the ones saying, how dare you do ministry on the Sabbath? And they'd always, always perk up their nose. And, and uh, they, they're, I mean, we, we look at them and we're like, oh, they're so evil. And later we'll get to the point that we're all pretty much all Pharisees. But when I, whenever I think of the word Pharisee, I always think of the time when I was in Chicago. And one of my homework assignments was to go and interview a Buddhist monk. And I went... Uh, up to the north side, and there was a, a Buddhist temple, which actually was like in a shopping center, so it was kind of interesting. And uh, I went in, and the Buddhist monk, you know, had his red garb on, and he was sitting Indian style, and I stood next to him and just had my sheet. I was just interviewing him. And one of the things that I gathered from it is I said, uh, <laughs> you know, so, so what is it like? I mean, what is a life, or what is a day like? And he just went off, I can't do this, and I can't do that, and I've got 14,000 precepts and rules that I have to do that are meticulous, meticulous. And I respected him for his self-discipline, but that was about it. I felt bad for him. Uh, on almost every realm, he's, I don't know how, how that guy can have fun. Um, it, certainly, you know, it certainly seems like things would be cold in that robe in Chicago in the wintertime. Mm. I'm sure the same color gets old, too, wearing that same robe. And dating would probably be pretty hard. But, um, not a, I don't know, date. But, uh, 
But anyways, that's what I think of, is a man saying, I've got all these precepts, and I'm pretty honorable. Now, now one of the things is they, they, they'd say they're humble, but they're really not, because they're self-righteous. They say, well, you know, I'm, pr- I'm pretty good for what I do. They, they, I mean, they don't say that. They're the ones with the immaculate prayers, right? They're the one that Jesus said, look at the man who prayed this way. Look at the man who, who's, who's humble and really not praying before other people. This is the difference with the Pharisees. But what Paul's saying is, I was a Pharisee saying, um, you know, I was a man who kept the precepts. They, they had all these precepts in, in the Torah that Moses laid down. Can't do this, can't do that, can't do that, can't do that. And what the Pharisees said was, okay, these are all these sins by commission, going out and actively sinning. I'm not going to do those, but I'm also not going to commit sins of omission, accidentally sinning. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to build up a buffer zone so I can't even accidentally sin. So they were, they were so weighted down by the law, but it was so in, the, in, in their desire to please God. And more than that, he also had a teacher named Gamaliel. Gamaliel, I believe that's the way you say it. Gamaliel was, was probably at that point uh, one of the top two or three Pharisaic teachers in his day. If you remember the text when Jesus says, or the Pharisees say, you know, what's the rule on divorce? You know, is it for any reason or the Mosaic law? And it, and it says, try to trick him. It wasn't an open question because there's two schools of thought of, can you just get divorced for anything or the Mosaic law? Gamaliel was one of the two schools of thought who, who came out that way. And everyone knew him in Jerusalem that they even questioned him. And, and Paul was his star pupil. You get the idea, this guy is the guy. Behind Jesus, Paul was the man. And even more than that, uh, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. He was there at Stephen's stoning. On his way when Jesus said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? He was going to persecute the church even more. It was not because he saw himself as an evil man. He wasn't, uh, he wasn't Nietzsche lived out. He wasn't Stalin. He was committed to Christ I'm sorry, committed to God in the Mosaic law that these people spoke against Moses, is Moses' law being the old covenant, the new covenant. Christ destroys that. And he said, no, no, not to my God. He was wholly more committed to his God than we are committed oftentimes to our own Christianity. So we look at this, we're like, well, how terrible is that? It was virtuous. If we could be committed to God, Christ, the same way he was, I mean, it'd be unbelievable. Did the Pharisees gave more than probably 99% here? They read the scriptures more than 99% here. We look at them and we're like, how dare they? But they would be model citizens. They'd all be probably elected elders. They'd all be elected to the head of the church, and we'd say, oh, I want to be like them. These people on the outside were extremely virtuous. Under the law, blameless. No one could point a finger at them. No one could say anything unless it was good. You see that? You see what Paul did? He helped the old lady across the street. You see what Paul did? You hear his prayer this morning? Oh, man, I wish I could pray like him. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss. So he's saying, and I count it all as loss. He's like, you know what? No, I count it as crap. It's terrible. It's awful. So what is it here that he's building? He's building a resume. You see that? A resume is an accolades and a list of skills. It says this, 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 this is what I am. I'm born in the eighth, uh, circumcised the eighth day, born a Hebrew of Hebrews, Benjamite. Uh, oh man, I, I was a Pharisee, learned to Gamaliel. My dad was a Pharisee. I just, I mean, my blood runs Israel. Cut me open and you can see Abraham. You know, I mean, and, and what he says is, is it's awful, but that's how I counted 
That's, that's how I'm good to be accepted. That's what a resume is. A resume is saying, I'm not currently on the outside, but I'm assembling all these skills, all these ideas to present myself worthy of being accepted. We, always, we, we all work in resumes. We work in resumes with other people. Think about this. You go, you go high school, college, work, everything you do, you say, well, how am I going to be accepted? You buy certain clothes. You read certain books. You do uh, certain things to, to perform for the boss, all to be accepted. It's all a resume system. We're all assembling ideas or, or all accept, uh, assembling accolades so that others will approve of us. But even more than that, we develop resumes for ourselves. At the end of the night, you find yourself either acceptable or not acceptable according to the standards of your own resume. You find yourself, you, you either dash yourself and are depressed or are happy because you've tied yourself to a certain standard for which you can say, yeah, I did good today. I did good. And essentially what Paul is saying is it's righteousness. That's the $100 theological term today is righteousness. Um, righteousness needs, means more than to just be made right. It means in relationship to be accepted. And so we all have our own forms of righteousness. We all perform our own resumes, and that's what it is. That's what Paul did here. He's saying, you know, before God, I had my own form of righteousness. I said that I, I could be accepted as, as being a Pharisee, and I thought God the Father would accept me because I persecuted these Christians who were against the law. I was a Pharisee. I was considering my own righteousness. But when he saw Christ on the road, He said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? The man who probably stood, as Luther said, behind Christ as being probably the greatest man in religion, to to consider himself self-righteous. He considered himself utterly humiliated in the sight of a holy Christ. And he knelt down, was blinded. And his self-righteousness totally faded to the background. Point two, the greatest need that we have is righteousness. Luther, every week, talked about how he always preached down man's self-righteousness. And every week, it seems it didn't really make a dent. It's so in tune with who we are, our own self-righteousness. We put it on ourselves that I can, I can inherit eternal life. I can inherit my own righteousness. I can make myself acceptable to God. I can make myself acceptable to myself as I can make myself acceptable to other people. So some biblical examples of how we cope with that need to be righteous. Let's just go to the beginning. What was the first idea? What was the first time we tried to make ourselves self-righteous to say, you know, God, I'm acceptable? How far do you think you have to go into the Bible? Genesis 3. That's right. Genesis 3. If you guys remember, um, grew up in Sunday school or just even go to church anywhere, you just, you know, even non-Christians know uh, the early Genesis story, uh, God created the earth in six days, rested on the seventh day, uh, you know, hung out with Adam and Eve in the garden, walked with them. They had a real tight relationship. And then the serpent comes in and pretty much turns everything upside down. Well, this is right, this is right after uh, well, Eve took the apple and then they said, you know, if you want the knowledge of Christ or knowledge of God, you know, eat this. This is right after, I'll start with 3.7. You don't have to turn here, you can just listen. It says, Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. 
and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Instantly, instantly, when they disobeyed God, they knew that there was a chasm, and they were instantly unacceptable to to God. Instantly unacceptable. Their eyes were open. They saw the chasm. They were separated. And then, and what did they do? They tried to form their own righteousness. They tried to sow a fig leaf to say, all right, here's what I need to do. I never knew I was naked before, even though I was naked. Now I'm aware, I have knowledge that I'm not like God, and we're not, we can't be as intimate anymore. How can I make this right? I'll look for a leaf. It's like that old Greek statue with, with leaves covering people. That's what they, they're, they're going to assemble their own way to cover themselves to say, oh, yeah, oh, you guys are okay. God would say, oh, yeah, you guys are okay. But what happens? And then they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves in the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. The Lord God called to the man and said, so even though they came up with their own self-righteousness, as we do today, come up with their own righteousness, whether we know it intuitively or not, but when God is brought into the equation and brought onto the scene, it all shatters away. It all drops away. That, that fig leaf that they try to cover themselves with, he began to realize, as Saul realized on the road, it's, it's, it's worthless. I can't do anything with it. And he hid still. And God called them out and he said, where are you? They said, I, have heard, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Even with a covering, he knew he was naked. He knew he was different. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I've commanded you not to eat? The man, said, the, the man said, the woman whom you gave me to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Two things that are telling. One is the fact that we try to come up with our own righteousness. We try to come up with our own fig leaf like Adam. Two, and the way that we can rationally still proceed forward with the way of our own self-righteousness is that we have to shift blame. Oh, I wasn't the one who did that. <laughs> I didn't do that. I mean, how often do you... Do you rationalize the problems that, that you, maybe you've, you've had a run-in with someone and you say, how dare they do that? And you see their side is just one-sided, but yours, you've got all these avenues of excuses. Well, you know, I, I was really tired that day or, and, and not conceiving that they could be. And so you have to shift that it's always 90, 10, 100, zero their way. But from the beginning, we have tried to be self-righteous. This is not just a pharisaic idea. As, as in a debate with Richard Dawkins and Elster McGrath, Richard Dawkins uh, totally attacked Christianity for being, you know, with the crusades of, of being evil and being violent. And Elster McGrath said, I mean, look at, look at Russia and look at China and the atheism that caused millions of deaths. And Elster McGrath said, it's not a problem of religion or anti-religion. It's a problem with man, anthropology. Man is sinful. It's the same way with self-righteous. As long as man is pride, prideful, as, man, as long as man is arrogant, he will try and make his own salvation on his own shoulders as Adam tried to cover himself. And God said, no, it will require death and there will be a covering, but it'll have to be from an animal being slain. You cannot make your own self-righteousness, but there will be a righteousness that can make you righteous. There will be someone who has a self-righteousness that can make you righteous. Let's see how Jesus uh, specifically answers the question of self-righteousness um, when he's evangelizing someone. Uh, Mark 10, the rich young man. 
And as he was setting out to his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And, you know, not calling God, Jesus God, he says, calls him good teacher. And Jesus realizes this. He says, why do you call me good? You know, is good except God alone. He's calling him out, confronting him with that. And he says, to answer his question of, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He says, well, let's go down the list. This guy is self-righteous. He thinks he's going to earn it. How can I inherit? How can I do this? And he says, well, you know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Just works right down the commandments. And he said, teacher, I've, I've kept all these from my youth. What Jesus is really doing is just exposing which form of self-righteousness and which way he was identifying himself worthy of God and what, what was keeping him, what was at the end of the night saying, I'm good and I'm not good and I can sleep comfortably. And it was his wealth. That was his form of self-righteousness. That's how he could say, I've had a good day. And he says, you lack one thing, go and sell all that you have, give to the poor and you will have treasures in heaven. Come, follow me. Disheartened, the man saying, uh, disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he, had a great, for he had great possessions. See, even th- this man on the outside, he, I mean, he, he didn't commit murder. He uh, didn't commit, uh, he didn't steal, didn't bear false witness, didn't defraud, honor your father and mother. On the outside, he was, as, as what Jesus called the Pharisees in uh, Matthew 23, 27, they were like graves on the outside. They're alabaster, they're beautiful, they're gorgeous. But the inside... They're dead, rotting bones. And in every way, we are just like them. As we assemble our own forms of righteousness as we see them, whether it's legalism or whether it's anti-legalism, we all have our own standards. As we're people, God created a world of order. Uh, and so that's why we can have our own standards. No, I mean, they're perverted and messed up from God's righteous standard, but we do have standards. This man's standard was well, you know, I have great possessions, and the great accumulation of wealth and possessions makes me, makes me happy. It makes me realize, at the end of the day, I've done probably a pretty good job with myself. And yeah, you know, he's religious. He goes to the temple and doesn't bear false witness and doesn't steal. But God is only a part of his life. He's not his life. Because he's the one who is his life. He decides, Am I, can I be happy or not? Timothy Keller tells a very telling story. Uh, antidote to this when he said, um, you know, he moved to New York City and it was very cold and I don't know, the heat didn't work. And the only thing he had to warm himself in was a hot shower. And so it'd be cold, cold in the city, cold in the apartment, he'd go and take a hot shower. And, and he asked the question, you know, when, it, when it's chaotic, when it's cold outside, when things seem to be awry, what is the hot shower? Where do you go and warm yourself at? This man warmed himself at the possessions if we're accumulating his own righteousness, how can it be acceptable by accumulating wealth? Adam tried to, uh, tried to form his own righteousness by saying, well, I'm good enough. I'll cover my shame with a fig leaf. The point is this, though, is that when you go into these accolades, this resume of saying I'm acceptable to Christ, as Paul does in Philippians 3, he doesn't just apologize for the things that he's done wrong. That's so easy to do. He apologizes for his own righteousness. All the things that you say, well, you know, I've, 
I've done what's good. I, at the end of the day, when you sin and you say, well, that's not what a good Christian would do. That's, man, I got to get back on track. That's what a Christian looks like. That's your own righteousness. You're a legalist. You're a Pharisee. If you sin and you say, a Christian wouldn't do that, you're a Pharisee. You don't love God. You love yourself. You're saving yourself. If you say, well, I'm going to give more money. I'm going I'm to love my kids. You're a Pharisee. If, if you can say, uh, if um, you can find your own righteousness, and, and I, I, you know what, I'll, I'll give some practical examples of maybe what this looks like. A couple notes just to mine here. Some personal forms of what righteousness can look like. Parenthood. Uh, Timothy Keller gives the example of his wife. Um, and, and there's two ways. Let me mind you this. There's two ways. One, uh, there, there can be people who are like the Pharisees are totally lost. And remember that righteousness or a form of self-righteousness is so innate within you, you, you never lose it. So you can be a Christian and still struggle with self-righteousness. In fact, you will always struggle with self-righteousness. The point is, is that you are always putting it to death and relying on the cross. Now, there's other people apart from Christ who aren't saved, who do form and, and, and lean on their own self-righteousness. Spurgeon, Luther, Whitfield, they're all very clear on this. Christians always form, uh, often form their own self-righteousness. And it's through sanctification of dying to yourself that you are continually relying on the cross. A couple examples. And this can be either your own form of justification, of being right before God, as someone outside of Christ, or someone within Christ who still struggles with this form of self-righteousness. Parenthood. You know, if you're a parent and your child struggles and... Um, you know, does something wrong, something a child would do. You say, oh, uh, they're going to be a juvenile delinquent. Uh, and you get stressed out and you get depressed. Uh, how could they do that? Uh, the righteousness is found in being a parent. Not that you don't love them, not that it's not a role, not that you don't provide for them, but if it can dash you at the rocks of who you are as a person, if it can plunge you into depression, you worry, it's your righteousness. You, you've put it out as, as saying, well, you know, that's my accumulation of how I will be acceptable before God. Friendships. Oh, everyone's got to like me. Oh, they don't like me. I'm, oh, I'm so depressed. I'm so worried. That's your righteousness. Work, career. If you go and you, you say, well, you know, I'm a lawyer. I'm an engineer. I'm whatever. And they're oftentimes seen as people at parties who talk about themselves and their work the entire time. Um, but if, if things are awry and they say, well, okay, 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 uh, check, oh, this went bad, this went bad, oh, but I still got this because I've, I've got a career who's still good with this. It's your righteousness. Now, it's very clear that you're supposed to still provide for your family. And Paul was still, still uh, honorable as a person, but he didn't see himself as, the, the motive changed. We'll talk about that in a little bit uh, of, of he wasn't no longer trying to say, well, I can do this, this, and this, because this is what an honorable person looks like. He was now doing it motivated by love of Christ, not to save himself. Spouse, I'm going to be a good spouse. You know, I, I love him and her. Um, and, and if, well, let me give two, two examples. Two examples I can give as to, to what people form their own righteousness. Um, you, got, you got a couple who are both physically attracted to each other. And uh, something happens, and it can be gender neutral. It could be a man or a woman. But after 10 years, they no longer look the same, which as happens with aging. 
what ends up happening is, you know, they, they don't about looking the same, and the other one cheats because they're no longer attracted to him. All that, all that really brought out is the fact of, well, I'm acceptable to myself. My own self-righteousness is found in how the other person looks. And as the other person accepts me, but they're not worth weighing myself by my self-righteousness because they're no longer, I no longer find them attractive. It's, you know, it's, a, it's, a, it's a conclusion of what self-righteousness can look like. Two, um, you got a couple who, let's say one's alcoholic, drug addict, um, it doesn't really matter which, which gender it is. Um, but let's say, for, this, for the sake of the example, it's a guy. The guy struggles with alcohol or drugs. The girl picks him up uh, from the courts, picks him up from counseling, picks him up you know, at, a, at a bar, in an alleyway, whatever. And everyone's like, oh, man, how is she or he could still be with that individual person? Nah, you know, she's, she's a saint. And I, I think it's 80% of the time that if that person rebounds and becomes... Um, you know, very proactive in the community and becomes a, a strong believer or at least, uh, at least beats the addiction, it ends in divorce. And the reason for that was the self-righteousness of that one who was helping was oftentimes found uh, in, in being needed. Well, okay, I, if I can help someone, then I can say I'm, I'm good. At the end of the night, I, I help them out of somewhere, out of a jam. I'm now a good person. I'm now able to lay my head on my pillow at the end of the night and say, God will probably accept me. It, it permeates everywhere. So we might not openly say, as Paul, or as the Pharisees, okay, this is how God will make me good. This is how God will, will see me acceptable. This is how I will be righteous before God and acceptable. We do this in every area of our lives. Righteousness is found in group attention of, all right, I gotta garner people's attention. If I don't, it'll destroy me. Uh, physical attention. Do I have good looks? If I lost my face or my body, would that destroy me? Athletics, legacy. You think of Ted Kennedy and the politicians of legacy comes before career, amount of money, materialism. It's everywhere and we will always fall short. Always, just like the rich young man who lived according to the law and lived a righteous life, but he was never fulfilled. Do you see that? He sought out Christ. He lived a righteous life, but yet he wasn't fulfilled enough. He had to find Christ. Our own righteousness is like, uh, it, it, is, it is a black hole which can never be filled. And in the sight of Christ, it'll be like the fig leaf, which will still send us to hide behind bushes because an almighty God cannot take our own self-righteousness. And so how can we be saved? How can we find a path to Christ? Luther comes up with the term passive righteousness. Passive, not because it's uh, passive-aggressive or it's not really doing anything, but passive in the way that it's being done to us. And that we don't take the active approach, passive righteousness, that we see the life of Christ and the active and, and passive obedience of Christ, that it's done everything for us. I think it was uh, Dr. Dr. Smiley or Clowney from, uh, from Westminster who came up with the idea for passive obedience of Christ. As it's imagine if it's a race. 
and you're running and Christ is in the other lane and you're running and at the end of your lane is an ax with a tree stump and at the end of Christ's lane is laurels and people celebrating and it's like you're running and you're running and all of a sudden Christ runs in your lane, cuts you off and runs right to the tree stump and his head's chopped off. And now his lane's closed. Your lane's closed. You can't go anywhere. The only thing you can do is finish in Christ's lane. The laurels that you get for nothing you've done. The motivating factor of righteousness is not self-righteousness, but it's Christ's self-righteousness that he's done everything. He's lived the perfect life, died the perfect death, and now he reigns in heaven. And so the motivating factor is not saying, well, when you understand that, typically people will ask, well, I can go on sinning, right, in Romans 6. And Paul answers that question. But if you ask that question, then you begin to understand righteousness of what really is done. If you can ask the question, well, I can, I can sin as much as I want because you understand the full righteousness. But the motivation, if you ask that question, was that you did everything out of fear to begin with. Well, I didn't do this, I didn't do this, I didn't do this. Because uh, you'd be like the Pharisees. I was feared God. But to finish that equation, now that you understand the righteousness, you're now motivated by love. Motivated by love. It's uh, the way in, in proper repentance is seen when you, when you commit a sin and at the end you can say, well, you know, damn myself and this sin and, and you remove this sin and you deal with yourself and you see God is a judge. You're still dealing with yourself. You're still, still dealing with your own self-righteousness. How could I do this before God? He's gonna, he, uh, if I hates me, I can't, I'm so shame-filled. When you begin to see the love of Christ motivating factor to you, with the righteousness, you see the grace. Then, then you, you know, in the beginning, you, you might not be the most moral person, but the more that you, you, your, your faith grows in seeing the prospect of the, Christ, of the cross, of what he's done, not on your accord, then eventually you, you probably will be as moral as the legalist, but it'll be a completely different motivating factor. And so when you get into sin and after you've sinned, you say, you know, not to be as cliche, but the old Ray Bolt song, does he still feel the nails every time I fail? You get into the situation, you get into temptation, or after the sin, and you say, how can I make him bleed more? How can I make him feel the pain all that much more? You don't see him as a judging God, but you see him as a God who's already taken the wrath of his father. And it motivates you to love him. It motivates you to want to please him. That's the righteousness that Paul talks about here in verse nine, that he wants to feel the pain. He wants to feel the death. He wants to love Christ so much that that's the motivating, motivating factor. That is the factor that fills you. All these other forms of self-righteousness, of seeing yourself, uh, of being worried and depressed, and worry and depression clearly are just signs of, I've got a goal in mind and it wasn't met, so I'm worrying that it's not gonna be met. You've tied yourself to a righteousness that is here on earth. And depression is merely the fact that you had a goal that got destroyed. Now, there could be biological imbalances. But what I'm saying is that on earth, if you tie yourself to Christ and the cross, then what, you're, you're anchored to something. And in storms of life that my dad went through, you don't sink. You don't get dashed against the rocks. And you get delivered up to heaven. That's how you can get through storms. Because a man who went through and was totally persecuted in ways that you and I will never understand. He wasn't, he wasn't a picture Bible Jesus. It wasn't, it wasn't all laughs. 
And the idea that the passion of the Christ is one one billionth of the pain that he went through. You will never understand the fact that there's sins that you, you will not, you don't know because you haven't sinned them yet. But he already knows them because he's bled them out. And then on top of that, his father turns his back on him on the most intimate union possible. You know, we think marriage is so intimate, but it's infinitely smaller. It's a small representation of the intimacy with Christ in the church, but Christ within himself in an own union. God, and God turns his back on him. And we say, well, I can't accept that grace. I can't accept that righteousness. I can't accept that because... I've got to earn it. And in every form of way that you do, you will be dashed against the rocks in life and you will be burned before God. All you have to do is accept grace. You have to see yourself for where you are in your own self-righteousness and cling to the cross. It's the only way you can be saved. It's the only way you can get through life. It's the only way because you, Hebrews 4 is very clear. Now, Now you have someone who understands your sin. When you gave in, there was legions of demons tempting Christ, and he, the demons had to give up. You got someone who totally understands and understands more than you ever will. Because it's completely self-righteous. We have it right. Someone has to be self-righteous. We do have it right. We do understand that. But it can't be us. It never will be. Let's pray. Only Father, Lord, uh, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your son. Lord, we, we are damnable people. We're so, we're so sinful, and yet we do not know the degree of our sin. Our hearts, when we, we think we're doing right, are actually driving us to, to, to feel that we're better than we are in the arrogance Every truth we tell instead of a lie, we build our own idea, our, our own mantra that we're good. Yet we do not know the depth of our own sins, of our own heart. And yet we try to be good on our own, saying, I will be good now. And we separate ourselves even more, angering you. Lord, help us to cling to the cross. Help us to cling to, to Christ as our only way out as our only alternative to sin. So in doing good and doing bad, we still deceive ourselves, Lord. Lord I pray. Lord, I, I thank you, Lord, for um, forgiving us. Uh, my dad, who's been a, a great minister of your word, and has ministered to hear everyone in this room. Lord, I, I pray that uh, your, your blessing will, will maintain and remain in him. And uh, that there'll be many years of be your, uh, be your plan that he can minister. Lord, I pray. Lord, I pray that everyone in this room uh, recognizes their need for a Savior and then can revel in your grace. Lord, and that as we go out into a community of lost people that were motivated by love because we know love to love other people, and not by our own self-preservation and our own righteousness, we don't love on them and don't witness. We don't have of righteousness of Christ, if that's the case. Lord, I pray. Lord, I pray that we have a great week and uh, that we, we keep you a center focus. Amen.